This is Concepts, where two pretentious sirs quibble over ideas that explain today's world. Phil Shea and Steve Rose. My name is Phil Shea. I am writing for makeaskilljack.com, and you can find more writing by me at hittingajack.com. Steve? My name is Steve Rose, and you can find more about me at steveroseph.com, where I write about mental health and addiction. Welcome back. Two things to say. First, I sound like I'm recording in a tunnel in this entire episode, pretty much, including number two, my aside, where I correct something that I, I misstated. So have fun with that. Hopefully you can bear with it. Steve sounds as silky smooth as always, and I will do my best to do better in the future. So thanks for bearing with us and uh, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Concepts Podcast. Welcome. Delayed. <laughs> this is going to be like a, the stupidest running joke we have, basically, of you just not knowing whether you're going to say. We even talked about this, just to be clear. We talked about whether he was going to say it or not. And that pause was despite him saying he's going to say it. I don't believe there was any pause. <laughs> okay, sure. We'll see. Uh, they will anyway, be the judge of today, this. What are we talking about today, Steve? Oh, we're talking about the concept of Ikigai, something that I've wanted to talk about for a long time now, and you've been rather lukewarm about the idea yep. and, and just kind of like, yeah, yeah, maybe we'll do it someday. Yeah. Long time listeners back in like episode one to three, somewhere in that range, uh, we did bring it up and I did talk about how I didn't really want to talk about it. I don't even know why. It's actually one of my favorite concepts ever. <laughs> and... You've been very lukewarm. So we'll see today uh, if that has changed or will change. Um, All right. So introduce yeah. the concept to us, Steve. What is it you think Ikigai is? Well, what is, <laughs> I love how you phrase the question. <laughs> okay. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preface this, this. This might be back to maybe closer to our roots of the first episode, which we deviated from immediately, but of possibly being um, something of a debates one way or the other or trying to argue a point i might be a little more adversarial than usual for um steve's steve's thing but we'll see because i don't know what he prepared and he doesn't know what i prepared yes again i think i told him just a minute ago that i have three pages well two and a half pages of notes well you, you have more notes than me yeah i was gonna about to say like i'm pretty sure steve probably doesn't have like any so i have very few so yes. Phil thinks this is going to be adversarial. I don't think so. I think he's underestimating my level of understanding on this concept. And uh, I think your, your level of rigor, I'm, I'm challenging your academic rigor. We will see. So let's define it. <laughs> let's get into it. Please do. In simple terms, uh, it's a Japanese concept. Uh, ikigai, and it comes from uh, the the. I guess there's no direct way to translate this because if you translate a one word from a language to a different language, it kind of loses its context and loses its direct meaning. Uh, so sometimes, I guess the closest thing that we can say is uh, a reason for living, a reason for being. Uh, a word I like to use uh, is purpose. Uh, it's related to intrinsic motivation like the french raison d'etre yeah raison d'etre raison d'etre d'etre if you want if you want to be a pretentious version of this you can use that so it's worth life worth um what makes life worth living there's no direct correlation between english words and this it's just a compilation and as as we talked about before with uh social construction Language is very tricky in this sense is that you can't necessarily directly understand the context of a different language unless you've kind of uh, lived it and, and and know the the nuances of the term. Yeah. To be clear, when we talked about social construction, it wasn't a dedicated episode. It was just a major facet of chiplessness, which was two episodes ago. Yes. Chiplessness, the made up word for lack of chips, which is a made up emotion word. And it really shows us how all of these concepts are in some way products of social reality. And this one in particular is very unique uh, to the, the Japanese concept, but it has been westernized. If you if you do a quick search on this, you'll find a, a van a Venn diagram. I always call it Van diagram, a Venn diagram. And the the common 
kind of a four-part Western interpretation of this is uh, it's a combination of four factors, doing what you love, what the world needs, what you can get paid for, and what you're good at. And so if you have all of those four factors, they say that that's ikigai. Uh, But this is a a highly westernized uh, butchering of the concept. Capitalism ingrained as well. You have to be paid for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That has a lot of Western ideas. And then the fact that it's put into a, a Venn diagram, you know, Westerns are very good at that as well. It doesn't really represent what it actually means in uh, the Japanese concept. Uh, they, they almost wouldn't even recognize the concept if they looked at this diagram. And so the, if you bring it back to more of a, the, the roots of, of what, how it's used, it's a common word, apparently, in Japan. It's a, an everyday type of word. And it relates more to a felt sense, an experience. It's an experiential concept. Uh, it's not something that's abstract. It's almost like the, the idea of passion, you know, it's, you feel passion, but it's not exactly passion. It's kind of related to that too, I would say. Hmm. But it's this felt sense uh, that you have a reason for living and, and motivation to go right. on in a sense. So would you say that your passion for whiskey would be part of it? Could that be an guy? I would say so. I would say so. But if you Ooh. go by the Western Venn diagram, it would it would be... Then definitely not. Yes, definitely not. Because you'd have to have all these criteria of what you love, what the world needs, and can you get paid for it? Okay, I'm not getting paid for it. Uh, I'm not a connoisseur, and and it doesn't fit. Also, what the world needs is a funny thing to me because it's like, what Mm. what do you mean what the world needs? It's like if I write a novel and I get paid for it, I love it, I'm good at it, but the world, does it really need another novel? Does it need no. my novel? What if it's just Pulp Doesn't. Fiction? Like, yeah, and I, I think that's relating to like kind of a, a demand, but I guess the word getting paid for relates to that too. So this interpretation of the concept makes it very narrow. It makes it very elusive and very put off into the future of some goal that maybe you can get it someday. But the real meaning of this is an everyday simple concept that anyone can have at any point in simple things and simple objects. And it doesn't have to be this kind of big criteria, this Americanized version. And is, is that the controversy you were going to hit me over the head with thinking I didn't? Yeah. Yeah. I was going to try to say like, we need, need to make sure that we're not perpetuating this kind of uh, life coach that has been pushed in the West, taking a concept from the East and being like, look, it's so profound, but it's actually just a repackaging of like Aristotle's ethics. I think wasn't that uh, this just seems very similar to that. I was trying to think of what it was called, but it's the where your talents and the world's needs cross there lies your vocation was the quote I found from Aristotle. Oh, that's, a, that's a nice quote. I think you and I have spoken a bit about that. I, I do like the quote. Yeah, I like the quote. I like the Venn diagram. I just don't think it's an accurate representation of how the concepts most often used in Japan specifically. Yeah. And it, it could be, I mean, it's not used at all like that in Japan from what I understand. No, the, no. It seemed to me, Ken Mogi is the guy that has, he's one of the two books. I think there were only two books that were written by actual Japanese people in the English language, or at least have been translated in the English language. And he, I listened to an interview with him just before we called and I was just trying to like cram as much of this in. And what it made me think of was the French reason to be, raison d'etre, mm-hmm. uh, the Danish higa and mindfulness in combination. It's something that you you enjoy life for. You have these small pleasures, which is like higa is a concept of coziness, finding coziness in everyday life and enjoying that, like basically being in a, a wood room or wood uh, chalet, let's say, or cottage, um, which I'm kind of sitting in right now with warm lighting, maybe a fire, a nice blanket and a cup of tea. That's like, that's the Higo life kind of. And then mindfulness is just like being present and enjoying that. Did you end up coming across Ken Mogi's um, five pillars of Ikigai? No, but I've come across uh, a couple other definitions from actual Japanese researchers. Yeah. Uh, so I'm curious about uh, that version that you found. Okay. No more combativeness. Now it's collaboration. Ah, oh, damn. I was hoping, <laughs> so I'm hoping to smack yeah, it down. You thought you thought I was just going <laughs> to pull, pull up the Venn diagram. I knew you were thinking that. You kept being very like elusively like, I think we're going to be combative in this one. And <laughs> yeah, I, that's how I speak. I, <laughs> and then I was like, we'll see about that. I was, I've been doing a lot of listening to different podcasts on this. There's actually a podcast called the Ikigai Podcast where this guy, he dedicates every episode 
to the concept of Ikigai. So see that uh, podcast for the actual expertise. We're just two pretentious sirs talking about ideas here. Yeah, as we say in the intro every episode. <laughs> but uh, that guy, though, he had Ken Mogi on, the author, and they okay. spoke about it. And Ken said that he thought the um, the podcast host has a good concept of it. The five pillars that Ken Mogi put forward in his book, The Little Book of Ikigai, were, and I think when listening to this, we should see how they overlap with the Venn diagram, which are, yeah. just to remind you, what you are good at, what you love, what the world needs, and what you're paid for. So keep those in mind. Uh, the five pillars that he puts forward are starting small, releasing yourself. I don't. I actually couldn't find a, a definition of what that meant exactly. Uh, harmony and sustainability, the joy of little things, and being in the here and now. So to me, like starting small, I guess, is he kind of said that the Japanese people don't generally need a giant grandiose framework to move forward. They kind of just start at the beginning and start just like chipping away at something, which is kind of what's in line with ACT therapy, right? Acceptance and commitments. Yeah. Not aiming to be the very best, but just starting where you can and with what you have to a degree. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, a lack of perfectionism in a sense, uh, taking small committed steps in the present moment with a values orientation is also another part of the concept. I didn't, I didn't quite hear it so much in that definition, but I know it is part of that. Maybe releasing yourself has to do with values. Uh, maybe it's, I don't really know what releasing yourself means. Maybe it means, especially in a Japanese context where they're very constrained socially, I think it might be to do with that, like being your authentic self, perhaps. So it does relate to values because the values is about releasing yeah. yourself from societal expectations and standards that are too rigid and you don't actually believe. So there, there might be an overlap. Hmm. Yeah, perhaps. One of the things he talked about as an example was um, someone asked him what Ikigai was, and he, he sprinted away shouting we and enjoying himself like a child. And so, so to him, he thought that everyone should have contact with their inner child. So I think maybe he means like uh, one of the quotes, actually, that seems to succinctly talk about it is he said, in Japan, we ha also have people who adjust to their social roles and their social roles become their lives. It's an adaptation, but I think it's also a tragic loss of opportunities, end quote. So he's just talking about basically how people kind of become the role they're playing, kind of like the, uh, the uh, as we've talked about many times, the dramaturgy mm -hmm. by Goffman, where they, they're just right. marrying the idea of being like a doctor or a lawyer. And they have to be a serious adult, because if you're not serious, then no one will take you seriously. But that's kind of a silly thing we're living up to other people's expectations in that way and not not our own right you have to be a serious adult yeah yeah so that that, that role-playing <laughs> dramaturgy is is kind of like that uh constriction and societal expectations but there's also a healthy type of role playing that you can engage in because it gives you a sense of belonging and purpose uh, it's the connection between what you can offer and i guess what the world needs and i guess it relates to that venn diagram in that sense but I've seen in other definitions of the concept, too, that there's there's kind of a, a family system community kind of orientation of the concept that's not an unhealthy, constricted version of that. Hmm. What do you think about the harmony and sustainability? That one is actually about social contexts, it turns out. Harmony, sustainability. Yeah. See, that gets very big picture in my mind. It doesn't uh, relate so much to the felt sense as the concept often is. It's very like, kind of a big picture environmental type of view. I mean, sustainability, as we understand it when we hear that word now, because it's mostly yeah. used in an environmental context. Uh, he was talking about apparently it's about how all social exchanges should be sustainable, Oh, which I guess in my interpretation of what he's saying it means that we should not necessarily, even if we have a strong opinion, we shouldn't, if it's going to damage the relationship to say it, then you may want to hold your tongue. Uh, if it can't be practical, but there's, this is a relationship you value, or even maybe if it's just one that you can't get rid of, like say a boss, then you would still hold your tongue in that way, which some people actually fault the Japanese for, but he actually claims that it's the secret to Japanese success. Oh, I like that in the in the social sense of the word, not necessarily the ecological sense. And I also thought of another version of that word, which is the self-care version of sustainable. Sustainability could be also an, an individual thing. Is what you're doing sustainable? Are you engaging in enough self-care that your daily routines are sustainable? Yeah, you're not going to burn out. You're burning yourself out and then you needed like a two-week vacation on a beach where you drown yourself with alcohol. Uh, so I think the, the word sustainability, the fact that you opened it up to that, it reminded me of this other version. So that, that's fitting. Yeah, I think it's interesting how with some words, you can call it priming or one that comes to mind, the concept is functional fixedness, hmm. which is where we see something for what we initially assume it is. And then we cannot 
break it out of that mold. So for example, I think it was an experiment where I can't remember what it was. I think it was a hammer or a screwdriver and they had to, the solution was to tie that to a rope to swing it as a momentum, just as a weight. But because people saw it as a hammer or a screwdriver, they would often not come to that conclusion because they're just thinking that they needed to hit or screw something with these tools, but they could just be used as a weight. Mm. And I think that, that happens with words like in this sustainability, we hear that and we think environmental, but it, it has a lot of different contexts, right? It just means to, to yeah. be able to continue going at yeah. whatever pace it's at. And, and even like the word sustain on a piano, there's a pedal called the sustain pedal. <laughs> and what does it do? Yeah. It, you press the keys and it continues them ringing rather than silencing them. So it's, it's kind of a continuity is what the word refers to. But uh, we can look at it. Uh, you, just, you just looked it up, didn't you? No, no, no. I, I'm, I'm not even looking it up. Um, okay. <laughs> continuity on various levels, ecological, interpersonal, social, and uh, individual. Yeah. Yeah. And no, I'm not looking it up. I'm I'm like just yeah. thinking about. <laughs> yeah, you're conceptualizing it. But I think we we dug a bit deep into that one. So are we are we changing this episode to the word sustainability? Are we looking at that concept now? <laughs> no, well, I mean we kind of did, but <laughs> a little too closely, perhaps. But a little too closely. The next one is uh, the joy of little things. That's where Higa comes in because it's enjoying like the small pleasures, the creature comforts kind of. That's a big theme that came up when I was looking up the, the actual Japanese use as well. It's like the the joy of like the cup of coffee in the morning, like the little things. Yeah, he literally lists some things as Ikigai, which you just listed one. I, I made a list here because I thought it was funny because what people okay. think it is like this grandiose purpose. You need to you need to do all these things overlapping and then your life is complete. But then like what? I don't really understand, like, are you supposed to design your career? How long should you be doing that? Is it like a, a temporary thing? Is that the only way to be happy? What if you retire? Can you no longer be happy because you're not getting paid anymore? Right. The Western definition of the concept, yes, is very <laughs> limited to that. It's very capitalistic in that you yeah. must be making money. Yeah. I want to talk at some point about the origins of the Venn diagram, but first I'll, I'll list what he said that made me laugh because I'm like, compared to what we conceive it as or what kind of self-help gurus push it as, it's not that at all. So what he listed was um, eating chocolate, drinking coffee, meeting people, writing a blog, answering life counseling questions. And he said that every day is made up of hundreds hundred small connected ikigai throughout the day. So just the small things, living in the now, enjoying what you're doing, don't feeling like everything is a chore, you know? I can very, very much relate to this yeah. aspect of the concept, <laughs> this small enjoyments. Like you especially, you're all about that. Yeah, yeah. Like little things like driving. Like if I have the car that I enjoy and appreciate the quality of, like, I just, it's just a five minute drive and I can appreciate it, take it in, you know, just as little things, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's ideally how you would be. Cause I think what we're sold a lot of time in marketing and stuff like that is that you need to have X to be happy. Like you're not happy. Oh, that sucks. It must be because of this thing, but it's like marketing does things to make us unhappy so that I could sell us the cure to a disease we don't have. Right. Yeah. And actually when we're talking about diseases, it makes me think of, I need to actually fact check this, but this is the story I was told. It was in one of my university classes, so I'm inclined to believe it. It also seems very, very intuitive for what we understand capitalism to behave like. So for cold sores, right? What is a cold sore? Uh, a pain on your lip. Okay, fine. It's herpes. It's um, oral herpes, okay. basically. Okay. And at the time before, they used to see them as cold sores because they thought it was like a cold, just something you would get once in a while. Not a big deal. Nobody really cared. It would go, come and go. It's a little inconvenient, a little bit. Generally, it's just like a canker sore or something. It's just something that comes and goes. Yeah. And that was how it was viewed before. It wasn't a big deal. Now, how is, how is herpes viewed? It's viewed as like this incurable, terrible disease. It's awful. Yeah. I don't, just as a disclaimer, I don't have herpes. But I just think that this particular story is pretty disturbing because yeah. the reason this shifted was because we actually developed a treatment for herpes. And you would think... But by having a treatment for herpes, so like when basically whenever you feel like a recurrence coming around, apparently, or an outbreak, that's it. You're supposed to take these pills and it'll like nix it. It'll stop it very quickly. And so in order to sell this, because people didn't care that much about it at the time until this product was developed. And then because of this product, they started doing this wide shaming campaign for if you have this, you're a disgusting monster and you need to just ugh, get rid of that. Yeah. And so it made a desire for people who originally were seen as okay and normal um, to think they were now diseased and bad. And so they could just mm. push these pills more. So it's, it's kind of like that, right? Like we, we feel like we need to have yeah. these giant grandiose things to fix our problems, but it's actually not fixed by those things at all. 
Hello, this is me stepping in from the future. So, uh, this is actually a conspiracy theory that turns out to be false. I thought I should check into it, and it's a good thing I did, because it's uh, it's wrong. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that's obviously my bad. So, fun facts. Uh, the CDC actually recommends against getting screened and diagnosed for herpes, because it's actually pretty much harmless, and its stigma is worse than the disease itself. It doesn't really seem to matter. It's not actually considered a venereal disease, because it doesn't actually require sexual contact, even though it can. It's more just through touch. Four to five people who have it don't even know they have it, which is probably for the best. And if we want to look at the actual culprit for the hysteria around herpes, it's from the media at the time, frankly. And people like Billy Graham. Billy Graham gloated, saying, quote, We have the pill. We have conquered BD with penicillin. But then along comes herpes simplex 2. Nature itself flashes back when we go against God, end quote. And that's obviously uh, a bunch of garbage. So at the time, if you want to know, uh, the prevalence of herpes between 1970 and 1985 rose from 13.6% to 15.7% which is just a paltry 2.1% increase of a disease, again, that doesn't really do anything. In 1983, there was actually a made-for-TV movie called Intimate Agony, where everyone on Paradise Island contracts it, and it basically was reefer madness for herpes, but it was successful this time. Reefer madness, for those of you who don't know, is a ridiculous propaganda film by the U.S. government to demonize uh, marijuana. Finally, the drug companies didn't play up fear at the time. There was actually a lot of different things making people scared of this, including the Rolling Stones, Time, uh, New York Times, Phil Donahue, Oprah, 60 Minutes, all these kind of ran huge scares about that. And the ads that came out were not specifically naming the drug that they were selling. And they had stuff like a man on a beach with a woman saying the hardest thing a man, this guy had ever had to do in his life was tell his girlfriend about his herpes diagnosis. So they're more sympathetic and empathetic to the situation and offered help. And this was after things had already kind of died down. So it's actually, again, sorry, my bad. It's false. All right, back to the show. Yeah, it's catastrophizing. It puts you into that. I've literally had calls where I've talked to people who think their life's ending because of this diagnosis, particularly. So what you're saying oh, really? uh, is actually real. I, I hear it. Oh, yeah, for sure. They have dating sites specifically for people with, well, I don't know about specifically um, herpes, but I know they have them for anybody with a STI that's not curable. They have dating sites specifically for them because people don't want to date them. They will not go near them, basically. Yeah. Like, that's how demonized it is. I've heard this before. Like, my life's over. Everything's done. It's like... Like I'm permanently damaged. It's my fault. And like I'm ashamed. And like, yeah, literally this exact thing you're saying is real. But it's a, it's, it is a form of catastrophizing. And it's not just, you know, some people with anxiety disorders have a tendency to do that more. Yep. But it's also a capitalistic marketing ploy that created demand for a big cure. Yeah, I mean... It's exploiting a natural psychological tendency we have. By the way, right. the, uh, catastrophizing is a cognitive distortion. I think that's episode six or seven. We, we talked about that before. Yeah. Uh, but I, I did want to point out that this is actually very typical of like westernizing things. I can't, I couldn't find the example. There was apparently something I came across before, but I think it was a Korean way to be kind of thing, like a way to live your life in a happy way. And I think it might've been like a diet perhaps. And so they tried to export it to the U S and it failed because it was only like one or two, maybe three steps, three concepts. <laughs> And so they ended up making it like a 12-step thing, like a really big, elaborate thing that was not even close to the original concept really anymore. But then it succeeded because America seems to think, or at least the West relatively, seems to think that it needs to be a complicated thing. Because like the answer to happiness in life can't simply be just enjoying the little things and yeah. just relaxing a bit. It must be yeah. something more than that because I, I can do that. Anybody can do that. That's not it. So it's kind of a, a funny thing. Yeah, it's kind of ironic that the concept developed into, into exactly that. The Venn diagram makes it into this this big, grandiose, kind of westernized thing, which is actually counter to the spirit of the concept itself, which is more simplicity, felt experience on a day-to-day -day level, not this grand goal that someday maybe I'll have all of these factors. Yeah. It's quite ambiguous, the concept itself too, which is counter to Western notions of everything must be clearly defined. Oh, yeah. And so there's there's an a comfort with ambiguity there. But I mean, it, I don't know if we can say all of Western because like Higa is a Scandinavian concept or no, sorry, 
Danish. I don't know if they count it as Scandinavia, but let's go with Americanized. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That, that works. I think though, that the reason it isn't Americanized in that way was kind of hinted at in a book I read called Fantasyland by Kurt Anderson. Okay. And in that book, he talked about how America's foundation, or at least maybe a lot of North America, it's a new world. It was a place that was sold as a lot of promises. You can go and be anything. You can go a gold rush, all these things. And so it attracted two particular types of people, according to him, uh, or three, I guess. Um, one was religious zealots because they wanted to go and spread the word, I guess. One was rubes, like people who were taken in by this fantasy imaginary image of this rustic living in the West, um, in the new world. So they were people that believed the propaganda that this was like the land of plenty and it would be super easy and you can be your own king of your own land. And then because there were so many rubes going, there was also a lot of charlatans going, trying to take advantage of those rubes. And so Mm -hmm. I think if... We view the founding of North America, maybe America specifically, it actually explains a lot of like the skepticism towards simple answers and how like they think that they, they want to get their money's worth because they don't know if they can trust the seller kind of thing. That's I, I guess yeah. that kind of ties a little bit. Again, we're not yeah. American and I don't mean to insult any Americans. This book no. was actually very interesting. So no. take that as you will, I guess. Yeah, it's a kind of a founding spirit of America, the culture, the the kind of protestant ethic is related that so we're kind of getting away from the, the concept again as as per usual but very related uh, so uncommon <laughs> <laughs> did you want to continue your your pillars no i was basically the done the pillars the pillar the little there was the joy of little things and then being in the here and now the joy of little things okay. we talked about the final one i guess is being in the here and now that's essentially mindfulness presence present yeah. paying attention to what you're doing not being lost in thought yeah yeah. And and so I actually uh, did some research on actual Japanese definitions in the research, and I found uh, a diagnostic tool. Oh. It's called the Ikigai 9. It was created by um, a team of researchers. And have you, have you come across this at all? I did not, no. Okay. You underestimated me. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, your last minute, your last minute brushing up, I didn't expect didn't expect the Ikigai 9. So maybe I'll list the the definition in this research, these nine factors uh, that they, they came up with, and then we can see how it maybe relates to these the ones that you found. So here they are. I believe that I have some impact on someone. My life is mentally rich and fulfilled. I am interested in many things. I feel I am contributing to someone or the society. I would like to develop myself. I often feel I am happy. I think my existence is needed by someone or something. I would like to learn something new or start something. I have room in my mind. There it is. What do you think? That sounds, I think, a lot more psychologically well-rounded. It seems like it actually would be a much better way to approach life, which is, yeah, like you have impact on somebody or something. Like, I guess that's why people find having pets to be very valuable. And there was research, I think, on people in old folks' homes um, or retirement homes, whatever you want to call them, <laughs> where if they had even just a plant to take care of, just to, to water that, they had a much greater chance of living longer. They wouldn't, if they didn't have any control over anything and everything was just taken care of, then they felt purposeless, I guess, and they were more likely to succumb to illness or outright die. So I think that that makes sense. My life is mentally rich and fulfilled. That. I think is really related to need for cognition. Some people I don't think feel the need to have a mentally stimulating life necessarily. I'm interested in many things. Is curiosity required to be happy? I mean, like a lot of these things, they help, but I don't know that they're necessary. Did you look it up yourself right now? No, I just, I typed them as you were talking. So that I could. Oh, wow. That was fast. You and your fast typing. I told you I could type fast. And that's actually why I was good at doing IELTS English training, because I would get them to answer a question at the speak for two minutes, and I would type their answer and correct their grammar as I went. (laughs) Wow, you're you're good. So so it was literally my job at one point. Not quite a stenographer, but uh, I do what I can. Uh, Let's see, I feel I am contributing to some other society and develop myself. Yeah, I mean, all these things are, are good. I think that we should actually do a lot of these things. Most of them seem like they can fit most people, not all of them. But yeah, what, what do they use these things for? So if you say yes to them, then you have Ikigai. Like, what is this tool for? You have higher, yeah, you have higher Ikigai if you say yes to more of these things, I think the idea is. Uh, one thing that stood out in this definition is so many of the factors are connected to a, a social connection. Like I'm contributing to society. I'm needed by someone or something. Uh, yeah. Uh, what does room in my mind mean? Do you have any inkling on that? Like your mind doesn't feel cluttered and busy? I would assume it, it's something like that, like a simplicity of presence. I think it's 
the lack of overthinking and anxiety, perhaps, because yeah, that's what I think it is. Yeah, anxiety is like constantly ruminating on things. So it's mindful rather than mindful. <laughs> like if your mind is full, you don't have room in your mind, and if you're mindful, you, you kind of put things in their place, and then there's no clutter around. You're not having to overthink. What is this thing doing laying around here? On oh, you're tripping on everything. So I guess mindfulness is is more than just presence. I'm curious what you think about that, though, because that seems like a luxury of being successful, because like I feel mm. I have to, my yeah. mind is constantly racing about stuff like I want to think about the things I want to think about and I find it mentally stimulating. But at the same time, I have to think about like, how am I going to pay for this? How am I going to live? What is going on here? Like if I had a more stable income, this is why in the past episode, when I talked about like the working schmucks, I consider myself as one of them. I I'm still trying to figure out like how I can be free of those things because I don't have stable, a stable living situation. So it seems like it could be a luxury. So what do you think about that? Can you still be free of mind and more mindful and present in what you're doing without like being lost in thought? Like when you have all these things you have to work through and consider? Uh, yeah, I think it's, it's partly a luxury, but not necessarily because you, you could see a lot of successful people with a lot more mental clutter than they had when they were of more modest means, perhaps, uh, because they just kind of get into this internalized capitalism, which we talked about in a different... Gotta achieve, yeah. Yeah, so it, it doesn't necessarily correlate... But I can see what you're referring to as in, I got to like, where's my next paycheck coming from? Like literally is something you're probably thinking about. Yep. And it doesn't help though to have a very cluttered mind about it all. You can have a lot of mental activity about like, okay, where's it coming from? I got a plan. I got a thing. I got, and, and you got to be vigilant. And you can have kind of a, a you stress, they call it. We can talk about that in a, in a different episode. It's a form of stress that is... Yeah, I wanted you to do that one. Yeah. You uh, stress is like stress, but a positive stress that that motivates you to act. And so I think... Yeah, the same you as in euphoria. Euphoria, yeah. Like positive. There's a benefit into this high level of thinking, but overthinking by, nef- by definition is not just a lot of thinking. It's over the top in some way. It's, it's becoming unproductive, actually counterproductive to you getting the next paycheck. So if you're sitting there ruminating on something, meaning repetitively thinking about the same thing over and over and just like pacing the floor, you're actually taking time away that could be dedicated toward actual work or planning. So that's kind of the distinction I would make. What do you think? Yeah, I suppose. I guess I'm just, this is me and like mindfulness more generally because I'm thinking like if you're mindful, then you're just experiencing what is around you. And I guess you could argue that your subconscious knowing that you have these issues, we'll be working on them regardless, and randomly something will come up. But I'm always thinking, I have monkey mind out the wazoo, yeah. uh, just constantly thinking about this problem or that problem or trying to work out whether this makes sense or not. And it's helpful a lot of the time. I don't feel like I'm like stressed out, but I guess I could be overwhelmed sometimes. I don't know. I guess it depends because you're, you're kind of making a false economy a little bit of like being completely mindful or completely like overthinking. Being mindful is still probably superior because you are more present and more able to enjoy your existence. But I don't really know how like passively thinking about solutions plays into this or not. Anyway, did you want to talk about the origin of the diagram? Or did you want to keep talking about Ikigai 9 actually? Are, are you done with that? <laughs> Ikigai 9, yeah. So I, I like it. Um, the key part I noticed was there's a, a lot of social connection pieces there that you're contributing to a, a cause, a group, you're needed. Yeah. And, and this, this kind of need to be needed is something that uh, I've, I've actually written about. So there's an article I've, I've written. It's one of the more popular articles. Yeah. Type in Google the need to be needed. It, it should probably come up. SteveRosePhD.com. Yes. Yeah. But people can really relate to this. Yeah. Like I, I wrote this title back in the day just kind of, I don't know, it just popped into my head. And I was like, oh, I'll just write some random article on it real quick and and it actually became one of the most popular ones because people seem to be searching for this apparently and it's this fundamental need and i think uh, a fundamental part of this concept what's actually before we move off talking about that the social aspects it's funny because like writing on the DD website you have to actually talk about philosophy at times because in DD there's alignments so good neutral evil lawful neutral chaotic it's like a three by three grid I think it's too cartoonish, honestly, because the way you're kind of conceiving evil in that context is like, I like to hurt people. But it, I think we're ended up landing because we had to talk about <laughs> there's apparently people asking questions about how to run evil campaigns because almost all games, most games are um, good players because the motivation is usually like this poor family scraped together what little money they have to like get you adventurers to save their daughter who's been kidnapped by goblins. And if you're bad, then you're just kind of like, and 
that's not enough money. Go away. So I, we had to define what evil meant in that post that I just put up this week. And I kind of came to the conclusion that evil is doing whatever you want without regard for how it affects anybody else. That seems to be the simplest form I can think of where you will go to reach your own ends um, regardless of how it hurts other people. And sometimes your ends mm. could be to hurt other people. But I found that thinking about this, you can have your goal of hurting other people, but still be morally good. Because <laughs> then you have to go into like the S and M um, community, where like you can like you're a sadist, you like hurting people, you got pleasure from doing that, and without regard for other people, then you're evil because you're just hurting people without their consent. But if you want to be moral about that end, you would then have to be like into like be a sadist with a masochist who enjoys it as well and is consenting to being abused in this way. <laughs> the way I'm tying this in is that we're talking about how being social, pro-social is what makes people more happy because evil or selfishness tends to not make people happy. It ends up being like this black hole where you feel like you have to keep performing more and more, right? Right. Okay. I see how you connected that now. <laughs> like, where are we in this detour? Okay. Context matters. Yeah. Got it. Moral philosophy there. And then tying it back to, okay, pro-socialness. Okay. This need to be connected. I got it. Yeah. And then I was thinking like, what is evil? Evil is the lack of being yeah. socially connected, basically of not caring about anything but your own desires. And I guess you, you would distinguish that from social isolation where, where somebody is isolated beyond their control. Yeah, I mean, that's also like a form of torture in, in many respects because we are... It's a form of evil, yeah. Uh, I don't know if I'd call it evil. I mean, isolating somebody without their consent, yeah, well, that would be evil. But somebody choosing to be isolated, I think is morally, it's more, it's void of morality. I don't think it matters uh, unless you're arguing no. that everyone should be contributing to the common good. If they're not doing bad things to other people, they're not affecting anybody else and they're living a sustainable life outside of society, then I don't see any issue. And you know what? I always have this question of what about hermits in a sense of people that uh, maybe wouldn't check the boxes in this definition of having an impact on someone, not contributing to society uh, not necessarily feeling needed by someone or something. Yeah. What if you are just happy living in your log cabin out in the wilderness and enjoying the simple ikigai of the cup of coffee and your view of the lake and, and all of that? What do you mean? What if? I mean, I'm sure some people are fine with that. I, I, I personally couldn't do it. I can't really fathom what that would be like because you'd just be kind of bored. But right. Well, but you'd have you'd have very high levels of of certain aspects of the definition, like mentally rich and fulfilled, and perhaps you're interested in many things. You're doing a lot of reading. And you feel happy every day and, and enjoying the simple things in that context. But this other aspects of the definition, the social one would be uh, perhaps more irrelevant uh, if you if you were to apply it to someone in that context. But you're also, I guess, ignoring that they could have a relationship with nature or with the creatures around them. That could be their kind of social scene, yeah. the actual relationship to nature, making sure they're not damaging that. Yes. Um, helping to yeah. build biodiversity around them by planting proliferating yeah. specific plants. So like they could still be doing something good. Like the relationship doesn't have to be with humans, right? Yes. Right, right, right. So again, broadening the... the definition of connection beyond the social into the ecological uh yeah. okay yeah and then there's the spiritual you can bring in and replace it yeah yeah but yeah exactly i was going to think about them too because like some people go to caves and just meditate for yeah. a decade <laughs> right so changing that to, uh, contributing to society or social connection to these other versions of connection makes sense that's why i think purpose what was it you said connection was like the third we talked about this a couple episodes ago mm. with self-determination theory, I think, where you're saying it was yes. um, mastery, autonomy, and you said connection, right? Uh, yep. Or relatedness is, is another way to say it. Yeah. And that's, those are the three factors of intrinsic motivation in, in, in our episode on self-determination theory. That's why I like purpose more because it's broader because you can have a purpose of just, your purpose is just to live out by a lake. Yeah. whittling all day <laughs> well and the word relatedness in that context again doesn't have to be social relatedness as you said it could be yeah uh nature relatedness so that whittling i like that idea <laughs> <laughs> there's something so simple and wholesome about whittling i think purpose can be anything knowledge acquisition is learning more which doesn't have to do with relatedness mm -hmm. at all but i guess we're this is a, a disagreement that you and i i think have never really squared away but that's fine for us to <laughs> focus on those differently um 
So you want to talk about the origin of the diagram, the diagram that if you type in Ikigai into Google will immediately pop up and everyone will talk about this friggin' diagram. Immediately. Yeah. Yes. Uh, well, the false origin is that it comes from Okinawa and it's a secret to Japanese longevity and, and, and all the rest of it. That's, that would be the false origin. Would you want to share the real origin? Uh, real origin of what? Ikigai or of the diagram? The diagram. Okay. So first... Ikigai was mentioned in a talk about centenarians, people who lived over 100 years old from, as you said, Okinawa. So where it actually came from was a guy named Mark Wynn um, in a 2014 blog post published this Venn diagram. The funny thing about this is that he basically talks about it later in a video saying how he <laughs> he actually took this Venn diagram and only added one word to it, which is the word Ikigai. Everything else is actually made up by a Spanish astrologer named, I'm going to butcher his name, uh, Zuzunaga Andres. Andres? It's just like, it's so stupid how it ended up getting away from him. Because like he says, this is uh, Mark Wynn again, quote, in 2014, I wrote a blog post on the subject of Ikigai. In that blog post, I merged two concepts to create something new. Essentially, I merged a Venn diagram on purpose with Dan Butner's Ikigai concept in relation to living to be more than 100. The sum total of my effort was that I changed one word on a diagram and shared a quote unquote new meme with the world, end quote. It's just so ridiculous how this picked up. It's not even related to the original concepts. Right. It was just like uh, some guys theorizing that, hey, here's one way to look at it. Uh, and then it kind of got traction because I guess uh, Westerners love Venn diagrams. Yeah. Yeah, I guess we, we really do. We really do. This overlaps with that? Amazing. Yes. What is a PowerPoint without a Venn diagram? <laughs> it's just a point then. There's no power. <laughs> there, there's no power to be made. Yeah, it's not there's a PowerPoint no anymore. No. Um, so actually, one guy I, I watched, he was criticizing the whole Ikigai thing, and that's where I got much of my research. Luckily, it was very densely compacted. Uh, he was saying that this is falling victim to the passion fallacy, and he doesn't like the Ikigai as Western people have conceptualized it, because he's saying that you basically can't be a happy person if you're not being paid for it. You can't be happy if, if this or that. If you identify with this too much then basically your happiness will maybe be like, well, I'm not getting paid or like, oh, I'm like, the world doesn't actually need this. And so you might actually stop the thing that is giving you joy because you're not living up to this particular thing. I think that's going a bit far, but he calls it the passion fallacy where like, unless you have like found your true one passion in life, as it's constantly pushed on us, then your life is pointless. What are you doing? Go find that passion. Stop living with your family and working a day job. Go find your passion. You need to do that or else your life was purposeless. And that's that's bunkum. That is bunkum. Yes. It's really this whole uh, <laughs> idea of find your, <laughs> you must find your passion, which actually makes it more difficult to find your passion. And I know this was perpetuated by uh, Steve Jobs and the whole kind of commencement speech that he gave and it became very popular. Yeah, I think it's always like a survivorship bias after the fact, yeah. kind of being like, yeah, yeah. I was definitely yeah. passionate about this. Because he makes it look at like, it's like a, you got to go on a treasure hunt to find your passion and it's out there somewhere in the world. It's elusive. And you just have to look hard enough and, and it'll be there under the under the haystack or something. So good they can't ignore you. Yes. Cal Newport. That is a book that argues exactly this, that it counters this idea and says passion is actually found in the building of competence in a particular area in a more explorative sense, impromptu, discovery-oriented and once you get so good at something, you become more passionate about it. And then I guess it relates to people being more likely to hire you for that. Uh, so the title of the book, So Good They Can't Ignore You. And I guess it relates to the Venn diagram too. Yeah, so. you actually wrote a post about this before where you were saying that I did. passion, the original use of the term is um, about like passion of the Christ. It's about suffering mm. for, is it for a purpose or is it just? Well, the actual etymology of, of passion does come from uh, suffering. And when we talk about the movie Passion of the Christ, it's not like Jesus, like dancing around. Or, Having a great time. Yeah. yeah. He's really passionate about God. That, that's not what the, yeah. the story's about. He doesn't have his vision board and, you know, go to <laughs> rave concerts. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. You're just picturing hippies yeah. then, are you? <laughs> Creating, I was thinking of um, Burning Man or something like that. Yeah. We've yeah, talked about that before. Still yeah. fits. So, so Passion of the Christ was not Burning Man. Uh, it, it was quite painful. And so the word root word passion comes from, I guess, a, a sort of suffering. And this relates to uh, Viktor Frankl's idea of what purpose actually is, which is part of logotherapy. Um, and it's um, suffering with meaning is, is purpose. Suffering without meaning is despair. 
And so he turned his whole situation. He was in many Nazi concentration camps. Yeah. And he had his dissertation destroyed too. This is a lot of stuff. His only copy of his. He had his psychological manuscript. Yeah. And they, it was taken away and he was subjected to a bunch of torture. What got him through was this meaning aspect. So the suffering plus the meaning, uh, it really created this passion, which re- relates very much to the Ikigai concept and how it uh, facilitates psychological resilience, mental resilience, but also physical resilience. And there's actually some uh, some research on how this has, has allowed people to survive uh, after different diagnoses and, and actually in, in older age and some uh, dementia research on this as well. I don't know if you stumbled upon that. Uh, no, I didn't. Uh, I guess we I briefly touched on that earlier from the... Um... Yeah. studies with elderly people and plants but yeah. one thing i did come across that i'm not sure if you came across so we're both like ha i got this thing you didn't come across Aha. well i got this and you don't did you come across um ikigai psychology uh what is that i guess you kind of did with the um ikigai nine it's uh, there's a woman yeah. called um mieko kamiya she's japanese mm. she's said to be the mother of ikigai philosophy or psychology where um she talks about i mean i have a quote from her here i'm sure she says lots more than this i didn't have enough time to do research because this is like the last half hour i was like i gotta find something more interesting here so it was quote it seems the word ikigai exists only in the japanese language the fact that this word exists should indicate the goal to live its meaning and value within the daily life of the japanese soul has been problematized according to the dictionary ikigai means power necessary for one to live in this world happiness to be alive benefit effectiveness end quote and what she basically points out is that as you were kind of saying that Mm. the japanese language is ambiguous i think that's true for a lot of I think they're called ideographic languages or ones with characters. So like, mm. what I, I think I said this to you before to a couple of people when I was trying to remember the word for toes, I mistranslated it to people as foot fingers because I know the word for finger, <laughs> uh, which would be more commonly used. We don't talk about toes very frequently, right? So like, I think the word no. for finger, the noun, and the word for point, the verb, I think are both very similar words. Uh, probably not characters, but the sound. And I remember thinking that the word for finger is probably more accurately depicted as the word for like digits, like uh, my foot digits and my hand digits. They're just the things that come off of them. That's actually pretty accurate, but like it's always reminding me that every character or every word in at least Chinese and probably Japanese as well and many cultures is that they're kind of clouds of meaning. A particular character in Chinese is a cloud of meaning. It's like instead of being finger, which it is finger, it could just be, it's also toes. So it could just be digits or like small extremities or something like that. Mm. So like you kind of get a feel for these words as you go, which is why translation yeah. can be so difficult at times. It is an ambiguity to the language itself and, and the writing even, yeah, and the characters. And this is why this, this whole episode is really about defining this undefinable concept, which is very much experiential. Yeah. And related to that, I do have another definition uh, by one of the top uh, Japanese researchers in this particular area, Hmm. uh, Professor uh, Hasanegwa. And he creates another diagram, which we can link as well. And it's called the constituent elements of Ikigai. And he says there's uh, the feelings associated with it are, let me just list them here self-realization and willingness, sense of fulfillment in everyday life, motivation to live, sense, sense of existence, sense of control. And then there's an etc. after it. But, so there's a kind of a vagueness even in the diagram. So it, it hmm. it's a cloud of meaning of, of sorts, as you said before. With the, the Yeah, it seems to be very impersonalized. It may not be drinking coffee because maybe you hate coffee, but mm-hmm. it could be drinking tea or whatever, going for a short walk, like whatever it is that you enjoy, being present for that, enjoying the small things in life, taking breaks it was also pointed out by like ken mogi about how like a salary man in japan they work exceptionally hard and to the detriment of their lives i would argue because there's like the whole concept of like um work death where you like die at your desk we'll have to do that uh, concept at some point yeah karoshi i don't feel like I know, either of us knows enough about the japanese culture or context to talk about it but we could try we're, we're, we're doing it right now <laughs> Why not? Sort of. Uh, yeah, I guess that's true. He was talking about how they, they find pleasure in the small grasped moments that they can, like the found time, as it's called, where you just have downtime that you're waiting for something to happen. Like you're on the subway waiting to get to work. So you're playing a game or listening to music or whatever. And I, I do actually kind of relate with that. I remember when I was working at this call center between Australia and China, back at one of my lower points, I would get like a 15 or like a 10 minute break. And it just feels like so pointless. Like right now, if I give you 10 minutes, to do something it would just feel so short and it is but because you're in the you're so constrained most of the time getting that 10 minutes of like just being able to browse on your phone it just felt so much more pleasurable than it would be right now if i were to just stop this and pick up my phone because like my time is more free 
So maybe it's highlighted because of that life. Maybe that's why it kind of emerged because they're so hardworking. I don't know. That relates very much to this idea that you, um, you've, you've noticed your ikigai most in times of suffering or hardship, going back to that idea of passion and, and suffering, um, that you, you, it really stands out in those moments. I think it's um, like contrast, right? Cause like yeah. everything psychological for people is, is about contrast. If I say like you're, if you take a, a very important test and I say you got 787 points, is that good? Is that bad? Like, where does that land? What's the top number? What's the average? Whenever we got like exams back, you know, <laughs> students would always ask what's the average because they wanted to know how they did yep. in, in context. And that's always, that's yep. why I think we're, we're always about relations between things. So if your life is generally very bad and then occasionally you get like this respite or nice break that's unexpected, then it's that much more pleasurable. Like that story, I think it's a, a Chinese proverb, maybe Japanese, where there's this man being chased by a, a tiger and he's chased off of a cliff and he falls and he grabs a root and is able to hang on just there. At the top, there's a tiger. At the bottom, there's yet another tiger that's taking notice of him. No matter what happens, he's going to die. He notices on the branch that he's hanging on to, there's a strawberry. And so he plucks a strawberry and eats it. And it was the most delicious thing he'd ever tasted. Oh, wow. Because of the, the suffering and the struggle, basically. Yeah, okay. That is a nice metaphor for ikigai. Hmm. I don't know if that, that is related, I guess, but uh, I've said pretty much everything I have to say about this. Do you have anything else you want to go over? Um, hmm. not, not in particular, no. Okay. Then uh, just to refresh, my, my take on the whole concept is, well, one, the Western concept is dumb and very rampant with um, internalized capitalism. My take of what it actually means is a combination of like the French reason to be, the Danish higa, like enjoyment of coziness and creature comforts and small pleasures and mindfulness. All those three things kind of jam together, just focusing on the little things, enjoying life, mm -hmm. um, seeing what impact you can have no matter how, many, how small on anything around you and trying to be pro-social. Yeah. Is that a good summary, would, would you say? I would, I would say it's a very good summary as per usual, as you always do. And <laughs> and uh, emphasizing that pro-social element is something I, I tend to, to do, but not as in like a gift of charity, you know, but uh, relates that back to... We'll also do that. Yeah, well, you could. But cherishing the, the value of your close interpersonal relations. That, again, is something that has been reinforced by 70 plus years of, uh, of research by Harvard uh, in what's called the Harvard Grant Study. Uh, we, could, we could link that. It's one of the longest, longest running longitudinal studies in existence, really. Uh, and they followed these, uh, these people from... Yeah, I have heard of this, actually, yeah. Second World War? Yeah, yeah. It's since then, I believe. And they've, I think, yeah. moved on to their kids, even some of them. Yeah. And they've, they found that in all of this research, one of the biggest factors that contributes to, I guess, not only just health, but happiness and well-being is the quality of one's close interpersonal relations. Yes. That relates to this. It's, it's, a, it's a simplicity, in a sense, that connectedness there's a kind of a purpose in that as well. Yeah. And I think I just wanted to wrap up and emphasize, um, you're emphasizing the social, I'm emphasizing, I guess, the small a little bit too. I just wanted to end with a quote by Ken Mogi. Japanese people don't need grandiose frameworks to move forward in life. They just take little steps, end quote. Very nice. Very nice. All right. Love it. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, hopefully we see you again next time. Share with your friends, hopefully. please. And uh, yeah. just, yeah, uh, that's pretty, pretty much how we're, our marketing strategy is that. So thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Bye. That's bunkum. That is bunkum.